The Sexual Nature of Man In Genesis 1.27, we are told that male and female created he them. It is impossible to understand the nature and psychology of man apart from this fact. The sexual nature of man has been both overstated and underrated. The fact of sex conditions our nature and perspective and is a basic aspect of our being. It is an aspect of our life which we cannot subtract from ourselves without ceasing to be ourselves. On the other hand, it is not an eternal condition. According to Christ, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels of God in heaven. Matthew 22.30 It is difficult for man in this life to imagine a resurrection body without the infirmities and limitations of his earthly body, but this is still his future. To consider man apart from his eternal life, as humanists and evolutionists do, is to reduce him to an animal and to distort the reality of man's nature and being. Similarly, to neglect the fact that sexuality is an aspect of time and not of eternity is also to distort the reality of man. Man lives in time, but his life transcends time. Man cannot be seen as only a creature of eternity. He is not an angel, but a man. However, he cannot be seen as only a creature of time, whose life is limited to this world. He has been created in the image of God. It is important thus to have a biblical understanding of sex. According to Piper, the main points in such an understanding are, first, the essentially complementary character of man and woman. Marriage and sexual intercourse institutes a genuine unity ordained by God for that purpose. Second, the essential difference of the sexes a difference which is apparent in all their being. Third, the change of nature called forth by sexual intercourse. This last point would be difficult to sustain from Scripture. Calvin, in comparing Genesis 1.27 to 1 Corinthians 11.1-16, observed, with reference to Genesis 1.27, This further difficulty is also to be encountered, namely why Paul should deny the woman to be the image of God, when Moses honors both, indiscriminately, with this title. The solution is short. Paul there alludes only to the domestic relation. He therefore restricts the image of God to government, in which the man has superiority over the wife. And certainly he means nothing more than that man is superior in the degree of honor. But here the question is respecting that glory of God which peculiarly shines forth in human nature, where the mind, the will, and all the senses represent the divine order. With reference to 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, Calvin wrote, When he, Paul, says, in the Lord, he, by this expression, calls the attention of believers to the appointment of the Lord, while the wicked look to nothing beyond pressing necessity. For profane men, if they can conveniently live unmarried, despise the whole sex, and do not consider that they are under obligations to it by the appointment and decree of God, the pious, on the other hand, acknowledge that the male sex is but half of the human race. They ponder the meaning of that statement. God created man. Male and female created he them. Genesis 1, 27 and verse 2. And thus they, of their own accord, acknowledge themselves to be debtors to the weaker sex. Pious women, in like manner, reflect upon their obligations. Thus the man has no standing without the woman, for that would be the head severed from the body. Nor has the woman without the man, for that were a body without a head. Let, therefore, the man perform to the woman the office of the head in respect of ruling her. And let the woman perform to the man the office of the body in respect of assisting him, and that not merely in the married state, but also in celibacy. For I do not speak of cohabitation merely, but also of civil offices, for which there is occasion even in the unmarried state. 
If you are inclined rather to refer this to the whole sex in general, I do not object to this. Though as Paul directs his discourse to individuals, he appears to point out the particular duty of each. 12. As the woman is of the man. If this is one of the reasons why the man has superiority, that the woman was taken out of him, there will be, in like manner, this motive to friendly connection, that the male sex cannot maintain and preserve itself without the aid of women. For this remains a settled point, that it is not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18. This statement of Paul may, it is true, be viewed as referring to propagation, because human beings are propagated not by men alone, but by men and women. But I understand it as meaning this also, that the woman is a needful help to the man, inasmuch as a solitary life is not expedient for man. This decree of God exhorts us to cultivate mutual intercourse. But all things of God. God is the source of both sexes, and hence both of them ought with humility to accept and maintain the condition which the Lord has assigned to them. Thus, Calvin clearly held that women's capacities for knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are no less than man's. She is fully man's equal in these things. The difference rests in the fact that government or dominion is given to man essentially. In all this, Calvin is right, but something more needs to be said. First, while the capacities of male and female for knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are equally great, they are not identical, in that each is conditioned by sex. This factor cannot be overstated. There is no such thing as a male arithmetic and a female arithmetic, but there is a difference of approach to the subject. Certain areas of knowledge are more appealing to men, and others more so to women. When both men and women are concerned with the same area of knowledge, their emphasis may well vary. This by no means implies that the male perspective is superior, merely that differences are real, although not absolute. The same is true in matters of righteousness and holiness. An exclusively male or female perspective leads to sterility and narrowness. Second, the fact that dominion is primarily a masculine calling has its effect on man's knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It was, after all, a male philosopher who said that knowledge is power, a typically male approach to knowledge. A woman would have said, knowledge is understanding, with far more wisdom. This does not mean that men despise understanding, or that women despise power, or that either neglects those aspects which are important to the other. It does mean that there is a difference of emphasis on the whole. Because Calvin lived in an era when modernity had for some time been the intellectual fashion, he reflected to some degree the equalizing of men and women, although his faithfulness to scripture prevented him from falling victim to this illusion. Turning to a modern conservative scholar's comment on Genesis 127, we find Atkinson's comment of some interest. The last sentence of this verse tells us the second of two fundamental facts about human nature. The first is that man is made in the image of God, that is to say, essentially a moral being. The second is that he was made in two sexes. God had two purposes in making the human race in this way. Firstly, he intended that it should reproduce its kind. This important function is confined, so far as we know, to the inhabitants of this earth. It is not shared by angels. Matthew 22.30, Mark 12.25, Luke 20.35. It has far-reaching effects. It unites the human race in a single bundle of life, making of it a unity impossible in the case of angels who appear to be separately created individual beings. It is this unity that the Bible refers to when it speaks of our being in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.22. The united humanity in Adam is a symbol and picture of redeemed humanity, similarly united, though by different means and a closer bond in Christ. This unity enables the one act of redemption performed by Christ to become effective towards the whole human race. 
just as the whole race has been affected as such by the one act of disobedience on Adam's part that constituted the fall. The power of reproduction also made possible the incarnation of Christ, which was essentially preparatory to the act of redemption. While he was not begotten by the ordinary method of generation, it remains true that the reproductive functions of the human race alone made it possible for him to assume human nature. This he did as the true child of Mary, through whom he took human nature from Adam. These facts enable us to speculate on the possibility that, seeing that moral evil was already in the universe before man's creation through the devil's fall, God may from the beginning have intended the creation of the human race to be a step in the redemption of the universe as a whole. The second purpose of God in creating the human race in two sexes was to enable it thereby to reflect the eternal relationship between Christ and his church. The apostle explains this in considerable detail in Ephesians 5, 25-33. This second purpose is valid to a limited degree. Clearly, the marital union does typify the eternal relationship between Christ and his church, but not because the relationship is sexual, but because marriage reveals both unity and subjection. To see the typology in the sexual relationship or act, which is not what St. Paul was talking about, opens the door to no small mystical eroticism. There was more than a little such mystical eroticism among churchmen, both in the pre- and post-Reformation eras. There are traces of this in Piper, even though he denies that sex in its origin can be traced back to the Godhead, as in many pagan religions. He does assert, however, that the church receives his, Christ's, spiritual gifts as the woman receives the man's seed, and therefore again these gifts are not lifeless treasures to be laid aside in a drawer, but germs from which new life proceeds, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. When the church has tried to deny man's sexual nature, the consequence has been serious moral disturbance. Men and women can and do live in the single estate as a necessary condition of their life, and they can be normal and healthy individuals, and very commonly are. The problem ensues when men and women live, not in terms of necessary circumstances, but in terms of a denial of an aspect of their being, a refusal to accept a creaturely fact. It is then that serious psychological problems ensue. The overemphasis on sex leads to equally serious, if not sometimes more serious, problems. An example of this is the Hernhuter or Moravian experience during the mid-18th century. Under the leadership of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the Moravians went into an extended period of anti-Christian beliefs, a sexual interpretation of the doctrine of salvation. According to Tabori, the spear wound in the side of the crucified Christ was turned into a sexual symbol. The wound was identified with the female genital organs. Copulation was called communion with Christ, and every aspect of the sexual act was given a mystical meaning. Sexual acts were made a part of public worship, in one type of gathering, the believers filed in solemn procession through the gigantic vulva. A bed and a table was placed in it alongside with a row of headless human figures. The latter signified the fact that the wonderful nature of the side cavity could only be understood by the heart, never by the intellect. Is Tabori right, or has he done the Moravians of that era an injustice and merely reported slander and libel? Bishop E. de Schweinitz limited the time of sifting to only four or five years, 1745 to 1749, and denied that gross sins resulted, but admitted that false notions concerning the atonement and Christ's wounded side prevailed. He admitted also that Zinzendorf had unwittingly originated this fanaticism. 
Since Bishop de Schweinitz was a bishop of the Moravian Church in America, he was less than honest in his account, but more honest than some who omit or deny this aspect of Moravian history. Strickland, in writing of Zinzendorf, merely noted, Something might be said also on the connection of a certain marriage rite with the theory of regeneration, the efficacy of which was probably tried by the Hernhuters in common with the Quakers. Bishop de Schweinitz admitted in another context that the controlling influence of the church was carried to unreasonable extremes, particularly as regards the sacred rights of the marriage relation and of the family. These were interfered with. He denied that the American Moravian churches were affected. The fact that these practices were ended, he held to be proof that the Moravian's church was founded upon Christ as its chief cornerstone. Sessler recognized that the period of moral dereliction was not a brief one, nor was it limited to Germany and alien to America. Zinzendorf's ideas were ascribed to a pathological condition which broke out in demonstrations of emotionalism, fantasies, and morbidity. The spear wound symbolism was carried to extreme sensuality and into various rites. The result was license and licentiousness. Hindu symbolism analogous to Zinzendorf's can be found in the extreme forms of bhakti and in the tantric literature. It should be remembered that John Wesley's conversion in 1738 was through the influence of the Moravians in England. To the credit of the Wesleys, John and Charles, they soon broke with the Moravians and accused them of universal salvation, antinomianism, and a kind of a new reformed pietism, as well as sinless perfection. George Whitfield charged Count Zinzendorf with robbery and intrigue in church matters. It is important to understand the background of such an aberration. Scholastic philosophy had introduced a false ground for Christian thought by its use of Aristotle, and the consequence was a despair of reason and the rise of mysticism. Moreover, the introduction of the Hellenic principle of autonomous man ultimately worked against reason, in that autonomous man had no desire to be bound by any higher law reason might discover beyond or above reason. The result was a hostility on the part of autonomous reason to propositional truth. Erasmus expressed his intense dislike for assertions or propositional truth. Propositional truth binds and limits man. As a result, Arminianism rejected predestination as an unduly limiting proposition for man and pietism in both Roman Catholicism and Protestantism rejected reason for the heart, the whole man for the fragmented man. The Moravian rite, during the time of the sifting of the headless men, summed up the new mood and motive in religion. Reason and propositional truth were rejected for a religion of the heart, which meant a religion of feeling. Not surprisingly, the Quakers, who earlier had placed the inner revelation above the written revelation, fell into like aberrations. The rejection of antinomianism and pietism by the Wesleys did not prevent Methodism from falling prey to both. Indeed, virtually all churches did. The sexual excesses have appeared from time to time, for they are endemic to headless religion, but normally they are suppressed. More commonly, they form an undercurrent behind a formalistic surface of moralism. Thus, in too many churches, fornication and adultery are very common, and sometimes taken as a routine fact of life, whereas divorce is seen as an ultimate evil because it breaks the surface of moralism with a public act. In headless religion, the sexual nature of man is overemphasized, because feelings become all-important. Sexual deprivation is magnified in such a culture to mean the deprivation of life itself. Man is reduced to his heart and his feelings, which too often winds up meaning his loins. 
not surprisingly, revulsion against such a perversion of man's nature leads sometimes to an overreaction and to asceticism, wherever an undercurrent of unbiblical psychologies exists. Moreover, headless religion leads to a headless psychology of man, man interpreted in terms of his instincts and feelings. As a result, further violence is done to the nature of man. Because God is personal, man is a person, and every aspect of man is also personal. Man's bodily chemistry is not only human, an aspect of the race, but it is also personal. Similarly, sexuality is personal, and headless psychology leads to a depersonalized sexuality. A quantitative approach results. It is not true, however, that godly celibacy is a state of deprivation as against an ungodly marriage. Because man is personal, an unhappy and an ungodly marital relationship is a far greater deprivation of his person than a single estate. The tragic fallacy of sexual manuals and the whole modern view of sex is that it is headless and depersonalized. Such a perspective leads not to the sexual fulfillment of man, but the radical destruction of man and a far-reaching deprivation. Wherever psychology reduces man to drives, instincts, or primitive urges and inheritances, in terms of evolutionary faith, it inescapably works to deprive man of his personal nature and his creation into maturity. The result is a meager man who strives through pathological and frenetic sexuality to realize himself, only to hasten his disintegration. In headless psychology, man seeks renewal and regeneration by means of his sexual activity and further depersonalizes himself. This depersonalization is a form of death. This depersonalization appears in what passes for sexual pleasure in modern thought. The psychoanalyst Dr. W.D. Sprague recognized this and commented on the aggressive aspects and the element of hostility and hatred in what passes for sexual pleasure, observing that the feeling of gratification is heightened by the conscious sense of having obtained revenge, of having gotten even. This revenge is not necessarily directed entirely against the husband. In many instances, it is directed against the community, against society as a whole. The wife, who seeks coital solace through adulterous or homosexual relations, is, in effect, saying to the world, You have helped restrict, thwart, and frustrate me. I am now showing you what I think of you and especially of your rules, forms, and codes. I am defying and breaking them. They have sinned against me. Now I am sinning against them. What Sprague does not say must be added, that this hostility is primarily against God and his law order. In such a perspective, sex loses its basic function and purpose and becomes instead a weapon and a tool of hostility. Food which does not nourish only creates a more urgent appetite. Sexuality which violates man's God-created nature cannot satisfy and thus creates an intensified sexuality which is neurosis-laden. Headless psychology then overdefines man in terms of this neurotic sexuality. Because man is personal in his life, his sexuality can only be personal, and hence marital, in order to find fulfillment and self-realization. God's purpose in man's creation is paramount in understanding man. Basic to that purpose is the creation mandate. That man exercise dominion and subdue the earth, Genesis 1, 26-28. Man's sexuality is related to that calling, to provide him with a helpmeet, so that together, male and female, may complement each other in God's service. This calling is basic and primary, it is personal, and it is theocratic as well. 
Children are aspects of that dominion, and of the extension of God's domain over the earth, but they are not the whole nor the heart of it. Man is thus more than his sexuality. While sexuality cannot be abstracted from man in his life, neither can man be reduced to it. At all times, man must be defined in terms of the image of God. Headless religion neglects or distorts the head, God himself. When St. Paul compared the relationship of husband and wife to Christ in the church, he was illustrating the meaning of Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The purpose of this submission is victory against the enemies of God and the fulfillment of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.11-15. It is only after man is defined in terms of the image of God in Genesis 1.27 that it is added that mankind was created male and female. Sexuality is subordinate to the image of God. In headless psychology, men are governed by their feelings and impulses. Many 20th century textbooks in psychology avoid use of the words mind, reason, and consciousness because these are, in their evolutionary perspective, only epiphenomena. Man is discussed in terms of rat and dog experiments, or if, in Freudian terms, the mind is recognized, in terms of the unconscious, the id, ego, and superego. The results should not surprise us. A mindless psychology produces a mindless generation that thinks with its loins and stomach and despises reason. The autonomous reason of Renaissance man has abdicated its mind and is surrendering its very life.